Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through 5 this morning with God's help. Saints, this is the very word of God. I implore you, please give it your full attention. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. They, these are the ones who have not defiled, been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as the first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. This is the reading of God's holy word. And we pray that God would add a blessing to it. Now let us go to the Lord and ask that he would bless the preaching of his word. Heavenly Father, we come to you now by the, by the Son, Jesus Christ, and by the help of your Spirit. Help us now. Help us now to benefit from these verses as saints of old and of all time have benefited from these verses. Lord, help us to understand. Help us, Lord, to long for and to believe. Help us, Lord, to obey all that is shown and revealed to us here in your word. God, I decrease that you may increase. Be glorified in Christ's name. We pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning, saints. I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and welcome you on this Lord's Day Sabbath as we continue our study through the apocalypse of John. And we come now to the 14th chapter of John's vision. And saints, we are blessed along with John and along with all of the saints for all time to behold the Lamb. The vision of the Lamb It comes at just the right time, does it not? Just when one is tempted to be overwhelmed by the dragon. Just when one is tempted to be overwhelmed by the two beasts, the one that arises from the sea and the one that arises from the earth, God graciously recalibrates our minds and our hearts so that we might behold the victorious Lamb. Saints, number one, behold the Lamb. He is the Lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns, that is complete power, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. He is full of the Holy Spirit without measure. Behold the Lamb. Saints, He is the spotless, sinless Lamb. Behold the Lamb who was offered up for a substitutionary, atoning sacrifice for our sin. Behold the Lamb. Behold the Lamb, the the angel announced to Mary, In her womb, there would be a baby that would grow and he would save his people from their sin. John the Baptist echoes what John here sees in John 129 when he declares, Behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. It was and it is by the blood of the Lamb that our sins are covered. Behold the Lamb. 
He is the Lamb who is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Behold the Lamb. Behold the Lamb. He is the Lamb who is worthy to take the book from the right hand of the Father. That book that details the sovereign and eternal purposes of God's redemption and judgment. Behold the Lamb who is worthy to ascend to the throne of God. For He is one in substance and essence with the Father. Behold the Lamb. Revelation 5. Every created thing in heaven and on earth and under the earth will sing to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Saints, behold the Lamb. Not the dragon. Behold the Lamb. Our minds and, and hearts might... Uh, be fixated by the dragon. They might uh, be fear, cause fear to rise in our hearts because of, of the dragon. And God encourages us, no, no, no. Behold the Lamb, the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has authority to break the seals, to unleash the purposes of God in, in this final hour. He has warned His people. In this world, during this final hour, You will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Behold the Lamb who is standing on Mount Zion. He's not standing upon the sea, but the Lamb is standing upon Mount Zion. Revelation 5, He's the Lamb standing, 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 standing as if slain. Not laying down. No, standing. He's not stretched out on the ground. He is standing. Saints, He is standing as one who was slain. But he is not dead any longer. The Lamb lives. Behold the Lamb who stands, and behold the Lamb who lives, and he is alive forevermore. Behold the Lamb. The posture of the Lamb, it speaks to his resurrection. Behold the Lamb who is standing. He overcomes by conquering death. And there is a present victorious effect in the Lamb's overcoming that continues even until this day in standing. Christ says that His resurrection and the power thereof, it continues to to stand for all of those who place their faith in Him. If you place your faith in Him, you will stand as He stands. He's not dead. He is alive forevermore. He is a lamb. Though was slaughtered, His sacrifice is efficacious for all who place their faith in Him for all time. He stands. There is an abiding, continuing condition because of a a past work of the Lamb. Because Christ, the Lamb, was slain. Because of Him overcoming death. The power of His sacrifice continues today. He stands. And so do you if you stand in Him. You also stand. All who place their faith in Christ, you can stand. Behold the Lamb. This, This Lamb who is victorious, ironically, through being slaughtered. It's ironic that victory comes through Christ being slaughtered. As Christ, the lion, overcomes, he overcomes ironically as a lamb who is slaughtered. It's ironic because it's through suffering that, that Christ wins victory. It's through this passivity of Christ, which is an active work that he overcomes. Behold the lamb who is standing. Saints, is it not encouraging? After hearing about Satan and his Antichrist, 
who oppose Christ and His church to know that in spite of all of their opposition, in spite of all of their persecution, that we have a Savior who stands and that we stand with Him. Again, where is He standing? In contrast to the dragon who stands on the sand of the seashore, Christ stands on the holy city, Mount Zion. Satan builds his kingdom upon the sand and it will sink down into the abyss. But Christ, Christ builds his kingdom upon the rock, upon Mount Zion. The Lord says, and it's amazing how John carries on this, this Psalm 2 prophecy. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. As the nations rage, as the nations oppose Christ and His church, as the nation builds, the nations build their kingdom upon the sand that will fall. God says, but I've set up my king upon a holy mountain that will not fail, that will not fall, that shall never be defeated. The city, this holy city, this, this Mount Zion is given various names. In Isaiah 62, the city is where God finds the light. In Isaiah 62, 12, it's a city that will not be forsaken. In Jeremiah 3, it is the throne of Yahweh. In Ezekiel 48, and Yahweh is there. Where is Zion, saints? Zion is where God is enthroned and where the Lamb takes His position there. There is no sin by the Lamb taking this position in Zion. Christ commits no sin when He takes His throne. He does not take the position wrongfully. He does not take this position on the throne in opposition to God. Rather, He is precisely, precisely where He belongs. At the right hand of God. For He is one with the Father. He is one with the Spirit. Behold the Lamb who stands on Mount Zion. He stands because He has risen. He stands because He is victorious. He stands because He takes His rightful place on the throne of God, being one with Father and Spirit. And will you notice, saints, that the Lamb that we are beholding is not standing alone. Standing with the Lamb is a number. We've heard the number before. It's the number of the 144,000. And let me be clear. I said, He's not standing alone. Christ is not standing with the 144,000 because He needs them. His power is not increased because of the number that stands with Him. Nothing can be added to Christ. Nothing can be taken away from Christ. But rather, those standing with Christ are a testimony of His love, of His grace, and of His mercy. They are the complete number of God's elect. We've seen them before, right? In Revelation chapter 7, we've seen the 144,000. And after seeing the dragon and the beast who is raising up this army, is it not encouraging that we come to the 14th chapter and we see again this number, the 144,000. What are they? What are they but God's army? Who are they but God's army? And in chapter 7, there's 144,000. And in chapter 14, there's 144,000. There have been no casualties of war. Not one has been lost. There's not a hundred and thirty-nine thousand and, and zero zeros. No, there is not one lost. None shall be taken away from his hand. Praise be to God. The army is standing victorious. They are the church militant, yes, but they are also the church triumphant. We stand with Christ. And saints, he's lost not a one. It is the complete number of all the saints of all time who have been redeemed by the Lamb. By the grace of God, we stand with Christ on Mount Zion. You are not standing 
on sinking sand. You are standing with Christ on Mount Zion. And where is Zion? It's in heaven. Hebrews 12 encourages, encourages us to know this, that when we gather for worship, when you and I gather, as you are doing today, and as the Word of God is going forth today, and as we sing songs today, and as we come and partake of the Lord's Supper today, you are standing symbolically, but even in a real sense, not on earth, but you are in heaven, Hebrews 12, 22. You have come to Mount Zion. Not you are going, but you have come to Mount Zion. You are here now to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the myriads of angels, to the general assembly and to the church for his firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the, of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Saints, when we gather for worship, where are we? We're in Bakersfield. No, no, no. Hebrews, the writer of the Hebrews says, you are in the heavenly city. You are in, you are in Mount Zion. So you see Christ standing and he is standing on Mount Zion. And you see the 144,000. They are standing with Christ. Where are you today? Standing with Christ. Where are you positioned today? Standing with Christ. Are you not standing? Are you not still fighting against the world, the flesh, the devil? And are you not overcoming? You are doing so victoriously because you stand with Christ. Praise be to God. Where you stand this morning is on Mount Zion. And you stand with your king. And your king is victorious. We stand, as the scriptures say in Hebrews, we stand also with the cloud of witnesses. That in the midst of their suffering and in the midst of our suffering, they beheld the Lamb. They fixed their eyes on Christ. You also, if you will continue to stand, you must fix your eyes on Christ. Behold the Lamb. When you grow weary, behold the Lamb. When you are tempted to turn around and go back to Egypt, behold the Lamb. When your flesh fights against you, behold the Lamb. Christ is victorious. And if you are in Christ, then so are you. He's not lost a one. He will not lose a one. When we gather for worship, saints, we don't come to Sinai. We don't come to the thunder and lightning. Instead, we come to Zion. We come into the very presence of God, and as He stands, we stand. We, we, the 144,000, you and me, the 144,000, we have the name of the Son of God and of the Father written on our foreheads. We've been sealed by God. We have been sealed by God. We've just heard of those who have the mark of the beast. You don't have the mark of the beast. You have the mark of the Son of God who loves you. You are sealed by His name. You belong to the Lamb. We have the divine name. The divine name of God. Therefore, we have the divine protection of God. You and I, who have placed our faith in Christ, will not be lost. The beast has his who who belong to him. But we also have a mark. It's the seal of God. It authenticates us as true believers. It designates us as belonging to Christ because of this seal, the name upon our foreheads, the 144,000. They, we are empowered to persevere, to persevere against anxiety. I'm sorry, adversities because we have been marked by God. This seal authenticates our profession, showing us to be genuine, showing that we truly belong to God. Do you belong to God this morning? Are you in Christ and is is Christ in you? Is there no other name that you claim as being the way to salvation but Christ? 
Do you believe that it is only through Christ that you can be saved? Do you turn away from all wickedness, from all other suitors, from all other false gods and say, No, I only follow the King. Then, dear saints, you are sealed by God. The mark, the seal of God, His name is on your head. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is upon you. Where is your allegiance? Oh, it's to Christ. And you being able to say this and to live that, it's emblematic of God's power in your life. You are able to do so because you belong to Christ. Your allegiance is to Him and to Him alone. When do you receive this seal? When do you receive this mark, this name? Well, in one sense, it's always been upon you. From the foundation of the world, in one sense, it's always been upon you. You've been set apart from the foundation of the world. You've been foreloved. And in another sense, the name comes upon you when Christ reveals Himself to you through the Gospel and you repent of your sin and place your faith in Christ alone and believe in Him as your Savior. Then you are sealed. When this takes place, you're given a new name. You're made anew. You've been given power to not only confess Christ, but power to not deny Christ. You've been empowered not just to confess, but also not to deny. To preserve through, persevere through tribulation. To hold fast to your faith without wavering. To be a faithful witness. Isn't that what God calls us to? He calls all the churches in the seven churches, be faithful, be faithful unto death. Persevere. Keep on pushing. Keep your eyes on Christ. There is a reward for you if you do. John encourages the readers who are suffering to behold the Lamb. To look forward with certainty that victory is yours in Christ. Rather than thinking about present trials. Rather than thinking about present suffering and present weaknesses today. It's just staying here. John is saying, no, 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 no. Look forward. And then walk what you know is before you. Walk that backward into your suffering. Walk that backward into your trials. Walk that backward into your weaknesses. Don't look at just what's happening today. Look at what's ahead of you and what's already yours. And then walk that back into the present. Don't stay in the present and go, but but there's something there. No, go there and walk that backward here. Embrace Christ. Behold the Lamb. And to do so is to renounce your allegiance to the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's to give yourself wholly to Christ and to Christ alone. And saints, what do we do? What is our response of this 144,000 as we stand victorious with Christ? Verse 2. And I heard the voice from heaven. Listen to to John. Listen to these likes. Like the sound of many waters. Like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like again the sound of the harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song. And they sang. John sees the 144,000 with the Lamb. and, And then he hears a voice from heaven. And and this one voice is like the sound of many waters. Remember, these likes are, are, are John saying, it's not that, but it's like that. John is hearing the sound of many waters, and then the, like the sound of thunder. And then he says, and then it's, what can I liken it to? It's like the sound of harpists playing their harps. 
And then John says, and then they, and then they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. And no one could learn this song except for those who were in the army. Initially, John hears what he thinks is a voice. It's just a voice, but gosh, it is loud. And, and as John begins to listen, he realizes that, that as he hears this voice, and if you can imagine like a voice echoing down the hall, it's like John is hearing a voice echo down the halls of heaven, as it were. He realizes it's not one voice, it's many voices. Saints, we are one in Christ. John recorded that Jesus prayed in John 17 that he and his father are one. And that those who partake in the divine life, that they also would be one. One of the redemptive purposes of Christ is to unite him to unite us to himself and then unite us to one another as one. First Corinthians, Paul appeals to the church that was divided to cease their division and to agree with one another, to be perfectly united in mind and thought, to be one. Philippians 2, we are to have the same love, being of one, being one in spirit and one in mind. Ephesians 4, there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to, one hope, one Lord, one baptism, one faith, one God and Father of all, Who's over all and through all and in all. We are one. The saints who sing, sing a new song with one voice. They are so, we are so united that their voice, the voice of million, the countless voice I should say, sounds like one voice. But not only is it one voice, it is a loud voice. Where is John when he's writing this? John is on the island of Patmos. And John, as he is thinking about what he can liken those voices to, is hearing the crashing of these waves. John says, it's like these waves. This voice that I hear, it's like the, these waves. They, they are from the same one ocean, but these waves together, they, they have this, this unifying sound. John says, it's like... Uh, what else can I liken to? It's like the roll of thunder. You've heard thunder before. That this, and sometimes you'll see it in the skies. That that kind of lightning, that lighting up of the sky that thunder does. It, it, that that kind of peeling and crashing that that thunder does. John says the one voice, and we might be tempted to think it's just a, a, it's a soloist. No, John says it's 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 loud like like the sound of a holy choir. Then John almost sits back and he begins to think of what is the most lovely thing that I've ever heard that was done as one. And he starts to say, it's like the harpists. It's like the, the, those who would gather at the temple. And John was a temple man. He, he had been there before. And he had seen and heard the sound of the priests as they would come and they would together, as the sacrifices being offered, would play their harps as one. And John is saying, there's only a few things that I can think of that are close to what this sound sounds like. It's like waves. It's like thunder. Oh, I recall going to the temple. It's like when those harpists would play. But John says they're not playing. They're singing. And they sing. Let us be clear. This verse does not support or give allowance for instruments in worship. Someone might go, well, there it is. 
John again is saying, it's like that. It's not exactly like that. It's like that. Because the very next thing that he says, as they end, they sang. Dear saints, in light of this victory that we have in Christ, is it not a joy to sing and to make melody from your hearts each Lord's Day as we come to Zion? What are the saints doing as they stand with Christ? They don't just stand there and go, this is good. They, they stand and as an army, they sing together. They sing among the myriad of angels. They sing among the citizens who are already enrolled in heaven. And it's a song that only those who are in the army know. Watch a YouTube video. Watch uh, uh, leaders who are leading cadets who are marching down the road. Watch him sing and watch them follow his song. Somebody just coming off the street couldn't just jump into that line and go, I'm going to sing along with you. They would get pushed out by that army. You don't belong with us. You're not marching with us. You have to be in the army to sing the song. Are you not uplifted, saints? As you hear the voices of people around you, various ages, various tongues, various nations coming together each Sabbath day, coming to Zion, and as we do, singing with one voice, praises of victory to our King. Do you not rejoice to know that there is not a piece of wood or a hollowed out drum that can take your place in worship, that worships on your behalf? No. That the melody that comes forth comes from the plucking of your heart strings from the soul. And the vocal cords that are used are your voice. You are the instrument. Is it not our delight and our duty to sing to God? It is a profitable delight to sing praises to God. It is preparatory for the life to come. It's what we will be doing, singing and learning and giving God praise and glory. It's what we do now. Singing is no frivolous act, saints. When we sing, it is no act that means nothing. And we don't sing ballads. Though our hearts are often more drawn to a ballad. Let us beware. When our hearts are more moved and uplifted. More moved when we gather to hear songs. And you know what those songs are. You fill in the blank. In my original writing of this sermon, I began to name a bunch of songs. I don't need to do that. You know what your song is. It's the song that when you hear it, you go, Ooh, that's my song. Let our hearts not be more uplifted or more inflamed when we hear those songs that don't glorify the Lamb than when we come together on the Sabbath to hear songs that only glorify the Lamb. We must judge our own consciences. But we must not allow our hearts from which the melody comes to strum louder for those songs than for these. We sing psalms. What do you sing at your church? Is there contemporary? Is there modern? Is there traditional? We sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We make melody from our hearts. These songs, they are deep. They're profound. They're theological. They are what we confess to be true for all time until the very end. 
we would do well to learn from some of our kids' lack of awareness of themselves. When they sing as loud as they do, not even knowing the words oftentimes, but, but as loud as they can hum, as loud as they can try to make out what they think is being said without any self-awareness of how they sound. They are making melody without shame. Is that not why Christ says that we must come to Him as little children? That we must be like little children. There is no shame in their praise and worship to God. And saints, there should be no shame in ours. I'm reminded of the songs that are sung in unison at international soccer games. Maybe some of you don't know what I'm talking about. But watch in an international... Not... on the states, watch an international soccer game one of these days. Listen to the passion. Listen to the fervor. Listen to the absolute commitment that every single fan gives to themselves of that song for their team. And their teams, whether they win or lose, the songs are sung with all of their hearts. You could see them and their hands are open and their, their, their faces are up to the sky as if their team has dropped down from heaven. But sometimes, and oftentimes, those songs are silenced by defeat. They are sung loud during the game, but when their teams lose, there is violence. There is great disappointment. The songs are not sung. There is only anger. Dear ones in Christ, we shall never know what it means to be defeated. In Christ, it shall never be said of His people, you win some, you lose some. Christ reigns victorious. Christ is undefeated. Christ has united us to Himself. And because we are united to Christ, we are victorious and we are undefeated. Therefore, our songs should never lose fervor. They should never be silenced. They should never be sung as if, well, you win some, you lose some, and today I'm losing. The song is a call back to the song of Moses when he crossed the Red Sea, when the enemies of God who defied the Creator of the universe hardened their hearts and they were swallowed up by the sea. Moses, if you can imagine, crosses the Red Sea. We're walking through uh, different scriptures and different stories with my daughter, Selah, and we told the story of the parting of the Red Sea and then I showed her a, a short little animation of it and the eyes of that little girl. The eyes of that little girl to see not only the salvation of God's people, but the judgment of the wicked. Moses stands on the other side. And I'm sure that his eyes were like the eyes of a child when he saw the salvation of God, God's people, and the judgment of the wicked. And he sings this song I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider have been hurled into the sea. He says, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, he says. And I will praise him. He says, my father's God. And I will exalt him. He's my dad's God. He's my God. Oh, that that would be sung about, sung about our children, fathers. That when we are long gone, that our children would say in their times of prayer, He is my Father's God. 
He is my God. And that that tradition would continue until Christ returns. He's my Father's God. He's my Mother's God. And He is my God. John sees that our voices go up before the four living creatures. And it's our song. If you're not in that number, you don't know the song. You can't know the song. The only way to be a part of that number, the only way to be a part of that that marching uh, nation of Abraham is to place your faith in Christ alone. The new song is always an expression of praise. It's always an expression of praise over God's victory for His people. But it doesn't have to be a song that you never knew. We might say, well, well, bring the new songs then, because we're singing all the old songs. Rather, the new song is new because our victory never gets old. His mercies are new every morning. His mercies are new every morning. Let us not be thrilled because we've learned a new song today. Praise God for that. We need to and we will. Trust me. But when we get through the 600 or so songs that we we will have, remember this. We celebrate anew because His mercies are new every single morning. Therefore, the song that we sing is always new. Has He kept you today? Then sing. Have you turned away from sin today? Then sing to the Lord. Are you not glad that you are still standing? Then sing to the Lord as if it was a new song. These past victories have a new effect every single day. And our song will continue to be new until the new creation. And there our song will never end. Third and finally, I don't know, Sister Ophelia is going to ask me for the points later. I forgot what point two was, but... Point two, new song. Point three, purity of the choir. There's a threefold description. Let's read it really quick as we close. Threefold description. These, and they're all going to begin with these. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb, and no lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Three-fourth description. Notice, they are not from those who dwell on the earth, but rather they have been purchased from the earth. They've been pulled out of the wicked. They were among the wicked until they were purchased from among the wicked. Each description begins with these, with this word, these, in order to distinguish them from those who dwell on the earth. Not like the ones on the earth, these. They've not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. Scripturally, this is meant to communicate they have abstained from unlawful intimacy. Remember, this is a symbolic book. So this must be understood symbolically. If it were not to be understood symbolically, then married individuals would be excluded from the 144,000. Can't be the case. Scripture teaches that marriage is a gift from God. That marriage is to be held in high honor. Husband and wife giving themselves to one another is not a defilement from God. It's a gift from God. So then what does John mean? Adultery defiles a believer. Being unfaithful to your marital vows defiles a believer. Not being married. 
So this chastity that John speaks of is spiritual chastity. It is spiritually purifying, be pure, being pure before God and being faithful to God. Who is your husband? It is God. How can you be unfaithful to Him? By giving in to the temptations of the world. Leon Morris, it means that the people in question have kept themselves completely free from intercourse with the pagan world system. They have lived up to what is implied in their betrothal to Christ. G.K. Beale notes that those who are chaste, chaste means pure, are Christians who have not identified with idolatrous institutions such as emperor worship or trade guild idolatry. What, what, is, what, what does John mean by chaste being pure? It means that we have not lied in bed with the devil. It means that we are not giving ourselves over to him. And spiritual purity cannot be separated from moral purity. The church is living during the time we're being persecuted to give themselves over to pagan worship by pain of losing resources, status, and even their own lives. They were being pressured to lay down with the beast, to yield up their purity to another, to walk in step with the ethos and the pathos of that world, the, the ethics and the passions of that world. Revelation 14, 8, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. But not for you who are in Christ. What is this, this chastity? It is for those who are not drinking the wine of the passion of immorality. It's those who are not partaking of this idolatry and adultery to God. No matter the temptation. No matter the consequences, they and you must hold fast. Paul encouraged the Christians, hold fast. This is what some of you used to be. But you've been washed, 1 Corinthians 6. You've been sanctified. You are justified in the name of our Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. That's who you used to be. But you are pure now. Walk in that purity. You have an obligation. A moral obligation to practice spiritual purity. Remember, Satan is opposing you. He's battling against you. But we've already won. But you must fight. And if you do, you will persevere to the very end. As we observe, observe John seeing that Christ is standing victorious... He hears this voice, which is the voice of many, singing a new song of victory. It indicates Israel's preparation for battle in the Old Testament. Those who were a part of Israel's army in the Old Testament would keep themselves pure from intimacy so that they could prepare themselves for battle. John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is calling all of you who trust in Christ who are devoted to Christ wholly to purify yourselves in this battle. To not lie down with Satan, but to fight against him. These, he says, are those who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. It's not in the present, or it's not in the past, but in the present tense. We follow. Not followed, but we follow the Lamb wherever he goes. It's ongoing. 
It's present and it's ongoing. To follow Christ is to identify with Christ. To claim Christ as the Son of God. As one with the Father and Spirit. As Messiah. As He who has come in the flesh. He who has died and rose again. To identify with Christ is to obey His teachings. To accept His redemptive work on your behalf. It's to hold fast in the midst of suffering and persecution. It's the opposite of what the Antichrist does. Following Christ doesn't mean that you will be martyred. No, not necessarily. But it's holding fast to Christ, come what may. Follow Christ wherever He goes. Whatever He's determined for your life. In John 21, in closing, John, John revealed, Jesus revealed to Peter the way in which Peter would die. Remember this? In John 21, Jesus says to Peter, imagine this. When you were young, Jesus says to Peter, you, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you to where you do not want to go. Jesus was telling Peter how he was going to die. It's what Jesus determined for his life. Peter is walking with Jesus and John is walking not too far behind them. Peter turns around and sees the disciple whom Jesus loved. John says the one who leaned back against the breast of, of Jesus at the supper. And Peter has one question to Jesus. Okay, you've told me about me, but what about him? And our Lord responded to Peter in the same way that he would respond to all of us. Um, in the modern language, that's none of your business. If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? And here's what he, he tells him to do. Follow me. These are those who follow him. They follow the lamb. Come what may. He has died. She has been persecuted. Uh, they have been, they have lost their job because of their stance with Christ. What am I to do? Here's Jesus' response to you. Follow him. Come what may. Keep your eyes on Him, not on someone else. Fix your eyes on Christ, the author and finisher of your faith. Paul said to the church of Corinth, some of you are saying you follow Paul, some Cephas, uh, some Apollos. Here's what you need to do. Follow Christ. None of these died for you. You were not baptized in the name of any of these men. Follow Christ. Follow Christ. Saints, no matter who stands behind this pulpit, if they are not calling you to follow Christ, don't hear a word they say. Whoever stands behind this pulpit, God help us. Send a man who calls us to follow Christ. Let us not be deceived by men who want you to follow only them. Men who, by all outward appearances, seem to be sheep. But if they call you to anyone to follow, they call you to follow anyone but Christ, they are a wolf in sheep's clothing. These follow Him. I am with you following Him. Christ's way becomes our way. His life becomes our life. We have been crucified with Christ, united to Him in His life, death, and resurrection. 
He offered his life for us. We likewise offer our lives back to him. We've been purchased from the earth by his blood. We are not our own. We belong to Christ and therefore we follow him. And finally, these have been purchased from among men as the first fruits to God and to the Lamb. They are the first fruits or the beginning of the rest of the new creation. Believers are first fruits of God's harvest during the last age. Very simply, it's this. As God prepares to judge with his winnowing fork, he sweeps through and grabs all those who are his in salvation. And the next swipe will be those who will be judged. We are the first fruits of God's harvest. Those who are brought in are those who are His. The next are those who go with the chaff. Saints, our Lord said to His disciples, Lift up your eyes and see the fields. For they are already white with harvest. The harvest is plentiful, Luke. But the laborers are few. Therefore, plead with the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. He is still in that first swoop of drawing all those who are his into his harvest. Do you know someone who is not saved? Do you know someone who is not singing that song that the 144,000 are singing Do you know someone who has not yet placed their faith in Christ and pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send laborers out and you are the laborers? Don't just think, we've got to pray for missionaries. You're a missionary. We've got to pray for evangelists. You're evangelists. We've got to pray for witnesses. You're a witness. You don't need a church to send you out. Christ is sending you out. Oh, we can rest assured of this, that there will be the perfect number of those whom God has intended to save. Let's be a part of his work. Let's be a part of his glorious work of seeing sinners saved. Dear saints, you are kings and priests. You have power to turn away from sin. You are priests because you have called to holy living. We stand victorious with Christ We sing a song of victory. And we are calling others, while there is still time, to join. Join his army against the world, the flesh, and the devil. We've won. In Christ we are victorious. Let us pray. Gracious Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for the victory that we have in Christ. Thank you that we can rejoice That we have been purchased from among the earth by the blood of the Son, the Lamb who was slain, but who stands efficaciously. His work still and will always have the power to save. To you, Father, Son, and Spirit, be glory, praise, and honor. In Christ's name, amen.